If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Mopac Audio. Thanks for joining us on the List Podcast. Today is part one of our discussion with Gus Garcia Roberts. He writes for the Washington Post and is the author of the book, Jimmy the King, which is about the life, times, and corruption of James Burke, the former chief of police at Suffolk County. And Gus's latest Post piece, written with his colleague, Alexandra Heal, came out on August 1st, and it delves into the Suffolk County infighting between prosecutors and police and how it slowed down the entire LISC investigation. And given what we've learned, Gus and I discuss when Rex should have been caught and why it didn't happen until more than a decade later. Gus, thank you for being here. And um, give us a little background on how you got started with all this and why Long Island. So I was an investigative reporter at Newsday in to, from 2012 through 2017, Newsday obviously being the Long Island's daily newspaper. And so during that time, I kind of grew fascinated by these characters. I did a lot of coverage of Tom Spoda, uh, who was the DA back in, in that time and is now a you know, convicted felon. And, you know, I just really grew fascinated by the story of, of James Burke. At the time that um, that I was there, the, this this case was starting to unravel. 
where he was accused and ultimately pleaded guilty to assaulting a prisoner who had stolen a from him a duffel bag with sex toys and, and porn in it. And then from there, by after I left uh, New York, I went to, to Los Angeles to work for the LA Times. I'm currently at the Washington Post. While I was uh, in LA, I, I continued to follow the case and sort of saw how it became this massive criminal conspiracy where basically the top ranks of the of the DA's office and the PD out there were caught up in this cover-up. And, you know, we could get more into it, but Burke has an extremely fascinating backstory. Uh, and it just seemed to me like he is he's such an interesting way of kind of exploring, you know, how big time policing, you know, Suffolk County is one of the biggest law enforcement jurisdictions uh, in the country, how it can kind of, you know, be perverted and be turned towards the interests of those in charge. And, and you know, this was an extreme case. Basically, he turned that law enforcement jurisdiction into his own private criminal organization. And so I just wanted to delve as deeply as I could into kind of him as a way of exploring the, the, the system out there. So the story, the, the book was published last year in 2022. And the book is Jimmy the King. And this is about Jimmy Burke. For those who don't know, Jimmy Burke was the chief of police and has a long history with Tom Spoda, who was the DA, um, who's now serving time for covering up crimes. Um, Burke is out, but he um, he served time for, you know, those charges that you stated about, you know, beating up a prisoner. I think it was like what denying him of his freedom or his rights, uh, you know, pretty, right. pretty was, heavy stuff. Yeah. It was that in addition to orchestrating the conspiracy. I mean, really, it's sort of like I, I think of it as good fellas with badges. It really becomes this this really wild criminal conspiracy where you have top law enforcement people you know, perjuring themselves, afraid of, you know, one one lieutenant said he was afraid of Burke uh, wanting to, to kill him if he flipped to the to the feds. And then basically just this this pretty wild pursuit of the feds pursuing Burke and, and others in the department. And, and that's that that was one of the main charges that he went down for also was was obstructing justice. If you can, you know, obviously you could write books on Jimmy Burke. Uh, you have, and they're fascinating. And, and I would suggest if you haven't read Jimmy the King, you should read it. It is a good book and it just exposes some of the corruption, just some of the corruption of, of Suffolk County. But could you give us a little history of Burke and Spoda and, you know, kind of how they met? Again, it can be in a book, obviously, but if you have a, a few minutes to just set that stage for us. So, you know, it started in 1979. There was an infamous murder in Suffolk County, uh, which is sadly the, you know, the site of a lot of infamous murders you'll find. And, and this one was a 13-year-old boy who was found in the woods behind an elementary school in Smithtown, New York. He had six stones stuffed down his throat and uh, the cause of death uh, was found to be that he had suffocated on them and he was also trampled. And the police kind of honed in on teenage suspects. The prosecutor who was in charge of the case, his name was Tom Spoda. He was sort of a young, ambitious prosecutor at that time. One, you know, he had gotten his big break just a few years earlier as one of the prosecutors in the, Amity, the infamous Amityville slaying case. And so... The 
authorities kind of start honing in on the teenagers, the wayward teenagers of Smithtown, New York, and those familiar with the history of Suffolk County law enforcement will know that the homicide unit had a method back then, which was they only solved cases via confession, virtually only. And a lot of times those confessions were gotten via violating the constitutional rights of the people they are interrogating, uh, whether it be through alleged brutality or separating them from their lawyers illegally. And so in this kind of environment where where these the teenagers of Smithtown are the suspects in this case, a figure emerges in, in Jimmy Burke, who is at that point a 15-year-old already you know i think he had been smithtown for a year but he was already sort of like in he had moved from queens he was already sort of in trouble to some extent with the authorities and he presents himself as a key witness over the years in this case and he you know he he takes the stand against four of his friends from smithtown and claims that in various conversations they incriminated themselves and that they um, they suggested that they had killed the, the boy whose name was Johnny Pius. And the case ends up, you know, the, the trials end up going on for decades because there's convictions, but then there's um, reversals on appeal. And kind of the, you know, this is a extremely thin case it's based on a confession by a, by a 15-year-old, or maybe 16-year-old. It's, it's based on a confession by a, a minor, uh, one of the boys who was in the back of a detective's police car and was barred illegally from having his parents or a lawyer with him. Um, and that confession is ultimately thrown out. So the case rests almost entirely on, on Jimmy Burke. Through that case, this kid, Jimmy Burke, who I don't think anybody would have predicted, you know, could have a future in the police because, you know, he had a history of drug use and hanging out with some of the, like the, the kind of truants and delinquents and burglars of Smithtown. That was his crew. He is taken under the wing of Tom Spoda, who was the prosecutor in that case. Through his guidance, Burke enters the 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 police first as an NYPD officer and then Suffolk County. And then he starts to rise up the ranks of the PD, always with kind of Tom Spoda ushering him. Spoda goes on to become DA and Burke goes on to become police chief. And he's sort of wildly unqualified for that position. You know, he has a long, by then he has a long internal affairs history with one of the more glaring charges that was found to be substantiated against him administratively is that he had a long relationship with a convicted felon in his precinct whose criminal history included uh, prostitution. He is able to kind of bypass any scrutiny of that history uh, and take over this, you know, extremely large police force of 2,500 people and become the top uniformed officer in the department. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of examples of people with power in the county sort of trying to bring him down, trying to trying to stop his ascent. There's there's mid-level police officers that write anonymous letters to, to top powerful people. For the most part, all those enemies are, are basically just punished for coming back at him and, and are 
unable to succeed. What ultimately does bring him down is a heroin addict in Smithtown, New York. His name is Christopher Loeb. He steals from Jimmy Burke's truck a duffel bag with sex toys and porn in it. And Burke and his top detectives find him, bring him to a precinct, shackle him and beat him. And then, the, you know, the next several years are basically spent with the federal authorities trying to hone in on that this happened. And Burke and, and other top people in the law enforcement in Suffolk County covering it up. Ultimately, Burke uh, is forced to resign in 2015 when it's clear that the, the, the feds have him. And he pleads, he pleads guilty soon afterwards and, and is sentenced to 46 months in prison. And that is a good quick version because like just his his uh, internal affairs proven and unproven allegations you know that's a whole episode in itself and i know you've looked into a lot of that Indeed. and he uh he has a crazy record You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. 
I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. He takes over right about when, you know, Spoda gets in and the case blows wide open, you know, that they find these bodies. And then, you know, in, you know, you've written an article in the Washington Post recently that talks about this infighting that started about then, if not sooner. But can you talk about, you know, what are your thoughts on why Burke was, you know, I don't want to say against investigating, but why... Why did they not solve this case sooner? What do you think Burke was doing that that led to this feet dragging and just nonsense? Yeah, and and you know to to, to clarify the timing a little bit because you know I think it's really unfortunate for this investigation how the timing worked out, right? I mean the 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 tenth body of the victims that every, that the police agree were murdered was found, you know, within nine months before Burke took office. Shannon Gilbert, whose disappearance, you know, led to the to the discovery of those bodies, she was found, her body was finally found just a couple weeks before Burke took office. And by then he's already setting in motion kind of a lot of the missteps that that are gonna botch this case, right? So like when when Burke takes out he takes office January first, two thousand twelve, but even before then he has informed the chief of detectives and the top detectives who are on the Gilgo investigation, who, you know, have their own flaws in their handling of the case beforehand. He informs them that they're that they're off the case. He sort of does this vindictive move where he says, you know, you to the chief of detective detectives, you have to be out by twelve uh, by December thirty first. Uh, which kind of robs him of his pension or robs him of pension accrual, which is an extremely big deal to cops. And so it's sort of like this, this, this vindictive power grab when he enters office. And what isn't thought about at all, clearly, is like the, the status of the case and carrying on any progress that has been made in the case. So the chief of detectives and his detectives say that they are not debriefed before they leave. So essentially when Burke starts, when, when Burke takes office and plants his own investigators in charge of this case, they're starting from, from scratch. They lose all those months of progress um, since this case was first opened. And now we know that that's a really big deal, right? Because in this doc, a bail application that was released when, when Rex Huerman was arrested, it showed that when the bodies were first found, that there were that there were witness statements which pinpointed in a, a, a description 
of the suspects, which sounds a lot like Rex Huerman. Ogre-like is a, is a word that jumps out. And, and even more vitally, you know, a truck, uh, the, the, the Chevy Avalanche, a pretty rare truck. And that truck is essentially what led current investigators directly to Rex Huerman. Um, and so, you know, I think this, this raises, that sort of revelation raises a lot of new questions about, you know, this disjointed transfer of power in which Burke uh, attempted to do it basically in the most, in the most vindictive way, basically as an FU to, to his enemies in the department. Was that among the factors that led to this lead just being lost and not being communicated to the next administration? And so to, to your question, from, from that point going forward, you have a lot of missteps under Burke. You know, the luckily a federal investigator did used um, cell data in 2011. He started analyzing it in 2011 before Burke, Burke took office. Uh, and he was able to complete a report in 2012, which which first suggested to law enforcement that the suspected killer likely lived in Massapequa Park and commuted to, commuted to Midtown Manhattan. Burke did not want the feds poking around in this case or on his turf. I think that in the beginning, it was likely like an obsession with credit. I think that a worse thing to, in Burke's mind than a case going unsolved was a different agencies, particularly the federal government solving it uh, on his own turf. And so, you know, I think we're really lucky that, that, that this analyst was able to get that report started before Burke, Burke took office, because I think if uh, Burke had taken office some months earlier, the analyst might've never been given access to the phone data needed to do that report and um, that report is essentially what current the current administration used to to hone in on on Rex Huerman, and you know a lot of that data is tough to recreate a, a decade um, later. So you know there's been a lot of speculation about like you know what was Burke's motive in keeping out the feds, and 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 you know Tim Sinney, who was the DA before this one has told me that he came across uh, he came across uh, a memo from detectives that basically said we were ordered by Tom Spoda, who was the DA at the time. And, and as, as I've detailed, it was Burke's, you know, very close crony ordered by Spoda not to allow the FBI's behavioral uh, analysis unit, basically their famed, you know, profilers access to the case file. Uh, in addition to that, there was also, you know, steps that were that were not taken that that are pretty routine in modern policing such as doing tower dumps which is when you analyze all phone numbers at a certain time to sort of would have been a way of, of possibly catching the the killer using his personal phone while in possession of one of the burner phones that they knew about which is again one of the things that there are indications that that was one of the ways they did catch Rex Hurman. So you see all these, you see all these various ways in which, you know, it's like, it's so botched that I don't blame people for saying, did he botch it on purpose? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. did he botch that, that, that Burke botched this case because he was trying to protect 
you know, you combine that with the sex worker uh, history and like, did he botch the case because he personally has something to do with this or because his buddies did. And, you know, I think in, I think in Suffolk County, like, as I've learned while reporting this book, like it's not smart money to bet against a conspiracy involving the top government officials of Suffolk County. That said, you know, I also sort of wrote in the book and I think that the arrest of, of, Rex Kuerman may bear that this out. Like there is no indication in my mind that Burke personally had anything to do uh, with these murders. You know, I think the feds completely turned his life inside out. And, you know, that was one of the clearest indications, you know, to me was they, the, the feds never had any suspicion that he had anything to do with it. Law enforcement out there, uh, even during the competent years, which is a small sliver of time in Suffolk County, uh, never had any indication that he had anything to do with it. So I think essentially what it was, was, a, uh, you know, this really kind of sad circumstance of events where one, one Burke came into there with a stance of like turf protectionism and not wanting the feds to break a major case on his turf. And two, by December, 2012, he has assaulted Christopher Loeb Within a few months, the federal government is investigating. From that point forward, he has gone full bore against the feds, right? So he, he takes the feds also off of an MS-13 task force. He does not want the federal government in his jurisdiction. Uh, I think it's partly just hatred of them, and it's partly, uh, you know, when you're engaged in a high-level federal conspiracy involving other law enforcement officials in your jurisdiction, you're not you're not going to want the feds cooperating with anybody in your jurisdiction. He's doing what he can to keep them off his trail. And sadly, given the power uh, that he had, he could do a lot to keep the feds out of his jurisdiction. So that that was that's sort of my my theory as to why, you know, everything went so badly under under Burke during this period. That's really good. And, you know, I think you're right to point out that it does makes sense why people might say is he involved is he part of it why would he do this but what you point out is that you know your theory and i think it's probably right is it's just he didn't want someone else to get credit and then once the feds were looking at him he wanted to give them no access and in some ways that's almost worse you know like that you would drag your feet and not care about something just to cover yourself not because you're involved just because, you know, you want to cover your butt on other charges and other things and other other missteps yeah. you're doing. It's just it's it's pretty bad. That's just horrible. And one, one, one thing also to add to that is like, you know, this was not one. It was not just Burke involved in this criminal conspiracy to protect Burke. Right. I mean, he the the, the D.A. Tom Spoda. Uh, ultimately was convicted at trial as was top corruption prosecutor, lots of unindicted co-conspirators, basically the top brain trust of both the PD and the DA. You would, you would be hard pressed to find somebody at near the top who wasn't involved in this conspiracy. And so you sort of have this, this massive law enforcement jurisdiction where, you know, throw out for a second, like the paranoia against the feds and, and all that. Like they were just distracted. They were just criminals. They, you know, they, they were trying to save their buddy from going to prison. And ultimately it got so bad that they're trying to save themselves from going to prison. 
during the trial is basically a mob trial. Like, but the people happen to have, you know, subpoena power during that time and, and, and badges. But, but when, during this trial that occurred of, of Tom Spoda and, and his top aide, Christopher McPartland, you know, the federal government basically laid out how they were spending work day after work day, having these conspiratorial meetings where they're discussing, you know, who we're going to have perjured themselves in this hearing, you know, how are we going to keep these detectives in line? How are we going to keep them from not flipping? And like part of this from their mind right then is like, what are we going to do about double digit bodies on near Oak Beach? So yeah. I think that was also a big part of it. Just distract as sad as it was just distraction. So for now, that's the end of part one with Gus. Join us for part two tomorrow, where we'll learn that even after Burke was booted from SCPD, the infighting and egos kept delaying the real work on the list case. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden, and music by Blake Maples. The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.